My name is Greg Kudrowski, and this is my podcast, Theology 101. Now, I'm not a pastor. I'm just a normal guy, and this is just me talking about my personal Bible studies. If you want to know more about me, well, visit my website, theology101.net. And if you want to hear more about the Bible, stick around. What is the Bible? You know, we took the last couple of lessons and we tried to answer that question, and we saw that basically what the Bible is in its nature, its formal character, is what we're calling a covenant corpus. It's a body. It's a collection of covenants. Um, The Bible basically is covenant. That's its nature. Like I said, it's its formal character. Uh, You come up to the Bible, it's not a self-help book. It's not some love letter from God to man. It's not a collection of sermons. The Bible is, by its very nature, a covenant document. It's a document that is legal in nature, that contains agreements that God has made with man. And we saw this covenant nature, just as a a quick review, we saw it in two things. First, we saw the covenantal nature of the Bible and the two-part structure of its contents. If you take the Bible and you break it into its basic two parts, Old Testament, New Testament, we saw that a testament is basically a covenant. It's a covenant that involves the death of a testator. We had the Old Testament, and the testators being the the animals that died for the the sins of of man, for the remission of sins, and then we had the New Testament that replaced the Old. It's the blood of Christ. And so two testaments, two, two major covenants that God made with man that shows us the structure of the Bible. God structured the contents of the Bible uh, in two parts, Old Testament, New Testament. We also saw, like Schofield said in his uh, old, old Schofield notes, we saw that same covenantal nature of the Bible in the fact that the entire contents of the Bible, they crystallize around the eight major covenants that God made with man. So eight covenants that build on each other and provide what we're calling a cumulative context through the progressive revelation of God that he gave us through history. So with that in mind, the nature of Scripture being this covenant corpus, this covenant document, it leads us naturally to the topic of study in this lesson. And the Bible, being this legal covenant document, is authoritative. Now, I mean, I know most of y'all that are listening to this podcast, you, you already accept the Bible as the final authority. You get it. But what I want to do is kind of develop this idea because of where we're going with the study. We're, we're, we're answering this question, you know, what is the Bible? Because I'd like to develop an introductory study of the Bible and its structure as a unified whole. And so we need to understand first the nature of what we're studying. What is the Bible? If, if we're going to study it, what is it? Okay, and it we, we saw that it's a, a legal, a covenant document, okay? With that comes this idea of authority. And so what we're going to see today, we're going to develop this idea that, that the Bible is authoritative. We're going to we're going to see that that has direct bearing on how we approach our study of the Bible. Now, the Bible is authoritative because it is a collection of legal documents. Okay, the covenants that make up Scripture are basically this legal mechanism that God designed and that God used to tell men exactly what he expects of those who are living in his kingdom. God is the sovereign king. Now, I'm going to use that word several times, I think, today in our podcast, sovereign. I am not a Calvinist. So when I say sovereign, all I mean that he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is over every kingdom. He reigns, okay? He is the sovereign king. He establishes the law of the land, in these formal arrangements or these agreements he makes with with his subjects through these covenants, okay? Formal arrangement, formal agreement, just call it a covenant with those who are living under his rule and his kingdom. A good example, very simple, is to think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, What was the covenant that God made with them? I've got two passages, two key passages. It's Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and then Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Here is where we find God basically making this formal arrangement or this formal agreement with Adam and Eve. He charges them with an imperative, a command, and then he gives them provision. He promises them certain things. He gives them certain limitations. The Bible says, and God said, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1.26, after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them. So here is God entering into a covenant relationship, a formal legal binding agreement. He says, be fruitful. This is an imperative. This is a command. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, over every creeping thing that moved upon the earth. And so God basically delegates to Adam dominion. God made creation. This is God's kingdom. And God delegated some of that authority to Adam. And so Adam, as a steward in God's kingdom, has received this charge from God. It is legal and it is binding. And we see the legality of it in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, where it says, And the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And so there's there's also some things here uh, to dress it and to keep it uh, within the responsibility that God gave Adam in the, in the kingdom. And it says, And the Lord God commanded the man. So here it comes again. We've got another imperative, another command. God is laying down the law. This is a legal binding agreement saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. God gave him provision, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat, not, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So God creates his kingdom. We have the heaven and the earth, and we have the Garden of Eden. He places man in that kingdom under his rule. Through the Edenic covenant, through this formal legal arrangement that God made with Adam in Genesis 1 26 to 28 and Genesis 2 15 to 17, we see that Adam and Eve. They knew exactly what God expected of them and exactly what would happen to them if they did not do what was expected. And so think of man's relationship to God in legal terms, because that's how the Bible presents it. If you look at salvation, and I understand in, in Eden, um, you know, Adam and Eve, they, they didn't need to quote-unquote be saved, but just think in general terms, man— in his relationship with God, we talk about salvation. Salvation always is spoken of in the Bible in legal terms, because that's how the Bible presents man's relationship to God. Before any other relationship between God and man is presented, we are confronted with the legal standing of man before his Creator, innocent or guilty. Before you ever entered into your relationship with God as a son of God, you say, well, my relationship, God, is my father and I am his son. You had to go through the legal process of being saved, of being declared righteous, because you were guilty before God in your sin. So let's go back to the Edenic covenant and think about what I said. In the Edenic covenant, in this formal agreement, God laid down the law for Adam and Eve. Well, why is that? Because God is the just judge of all the earth. We see that over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm 9, verse 8, for example, and he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. You see it in the New Testament, Acts 17, 31. Because he, God, hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man, Jesus Christ, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and then he hath raised him from the dead. So God being a just and right judge, a just and right judge will only and always judge by the law that's established among the people he judges. It would be unjust to judge his people by a foreign law. It would be unjust to judge his people by an arbitrary, subjective law based on the whims and moods of the judge himself. It would be like God judging Adam, condemning Adam to death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death, for simply looking at or touching the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in the command that God gave Adam, this, this legal mechanism through which God commanded Adam, did God say, do not look at that tree and do not touch that tree? Well, of course not. God said, don't eat of it. That was the law, and it was clearly stipulated in the Edenic covenant that God made with Adam. So in the A major biblical covenants that God made with man, we see that God established 
the laws by which he will judge men. When we think about salvation, we think, okay, is a person innocent or guilty? The innocent, they don't have to be punished. The guilty are punished, and God's place of punishment is hell. That's why Jesus Christ is our legal substitute so that God can be just and the justifier of them which believe in Jesus Christ. So God, through the the covenant stipulations, these eight major covenants, each covenant has, has several different stipulations. The stipulations are the laws by which God will judge man. The covenant stipulations, they establish exactly what God expects of each and every one of us. Just work through a couple. For example, the Adamic covenant, what we call the curse, um, Genesis chapter 3. The Adamic covenant establishes the law of conscience, and every man knows the accusations of a guilty conscience. The Noahic covenant, okay, Genesis 6, Genesis 9, that established the laws of civil government or human government. And we all understand the required obedience to the laws of the land in which we live. We break the law, we look over our shoulder, okay? We're speeding, we're looking for the cop. We know that. The Mosaic Covenant, the the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant established 613 laws for Israel. And the church is not without her laws. The church has been given the law of Christ as the stipulations of the New Testament under which we live today. And so, Scripture, as a covenant corpus, it confronts us with God's absolute and final authority over us and over our lives, because we are the subjects living in the kingdom He created, and the stipulations of the covenants that He made with us are the laws of the land in which we live. So the Bible, because it is a covenant document, is authoritative. And that's what I want to talk about in this lesson. I want to talk first about the origin of Scripture and how that speaks of Scripture's authority. And then I want to talk about the the express purpose of Scripture and how that speaks of its authority. And so the origin of Scripture. Scripture is revelation. So let's talk just briefly about the revelation God gave to man. The Bible is a book of divine self-disclosure. It is God's self-revelation to man. And because of this, we need to define some terms with regard to revelation. Revelation, in its most basic groupings, can be categorized in either general revelation or specific Revelation. Now, the general revelation, God has revealed himself to all men generally, okay, through what people also call natural revelation, okay? Why? Because it's God revealing himself, certain attributes, uh, what he's like, what he does, his person, his works, through nature. And what this is, it's very basic. It's creation speaks of a creator, okay? Stole that from Ray Comfort. You know how you look at a painting, and you know there's a painter. You look at a building, you know there's a builder. You look at creation, well, you know there's a creator. So all men who live in creation, they know there is a God, and because they, they know there is a God, they can observe creation, what God created, and they can learn certain things about God. That's general revelation. You can look at creation and say, yeah, God's big, God's powerful, God has a lot of knowledge. It's basically Psalm 19. First six verses talks about um, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork, and it it goes on and develops that idea that, that creation speaks to men, okay? Conscience would also form part of God's general revelation, since conscience is natural, it's common to all men. By conscience, we know that God is moral, that he distinguishes between right and wrong. We have that same capacity through the conscience God gave us. That's Romans two fourteen to 16, that when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So, 
It's basically general revelation, but where does that leave us, okay? Um, The creation, the conscience, where does that leave us? General revelation basically provides enough information about God to basically make man without excuse. Nobody can say, hey, I didn't know there was, was a God. I didn't know God was a moral being, Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his, his, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So general revelation, it does two things. It makes us feel bad, and it leaves us without an excuse. That's it, okay? We feel bad because we look at creation and we say, yeah, there's a God, and he's really, really big. He's a whole lot bigger than I am. And I'm pretty insignificant in comparison to creation, so how insignificant would I be in comparison to the Creator? It makes us feel bad, too, because of our conscience. Our conscience bears witness, like a, like a third-party witness, like an eyewitness in, a, in a, a court of law, and it points out every time we failed to do the good we knew we should have done, or every time we did something bad we knew sh- we should have not done. And so, basically... General revelation leaves us without excuse, and it leaves us feeling bad. So that, that takes us to the special revelation of God. So this, we need some additional revelation. If, if we're, if we're going to be made right with God, if we're going to be reconciled to God, if we're going to know God, we need some more revelation, okay, to know Him, to know His will, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, like, like we, we, we saw in the discipleship series. Um, we need the special revelation, and that special, special revelation is Scripture. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself. The Bible is God's self-declaration. It, it talks about His person, it talks about His works, His plan, and His program, and it's His revelation of Himself to man. The Bible is a book of divine self-disclosure. It's God's written communication to us. And so let's talk about that, that how God gave man his revelation, this special revelation, through language. Okay, and we're going to develop that idea here in just a minute. Language. 2 Timothy 3.16. It starts out by saying all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So what, what is that inspiration? Okay, everybody seems to want to make a big deal about inspiration in 2 Timothy 3.16 being God-breathed, right? Okay, it is. It's inspiration means God-breathed. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it does. It does mean God breathed. You know, you know, I grab my Strong's Concordance and you look it up, and the word translated inspiration is Strong's number 2315, and it's theopneustos. Okay? Theopneustos is a compound word made up of two different Greek words. Okay? First, theos, okay, which is God or deity, and then paneo, okay? Paneo, theopneustos. You got a P and an N there, theop. So paneo is the last part of it, and it means to breathe or to blow. And we we have words that use that kind of uh, etymological root today, like a pneumatic drill or a pneumatic hammer. Those are drills and hammer. Those are tools that work by compressed air that's blown through that the. Uh, the hammer or the drill, the the instrument you're using, the tool, and uh, makes it work. And so when you look at um, inspiration being theopneustos, well, it refers to the words that God breathed out to man in order to communicate with him. God inspired his words. He breathed out these words. So just think about that. It's not difficult. What do we call communication? Breathed out of our mouths, okay? I am breathing out right now, um, breathing out of my mouth, words. We fill our lungs with air, and then with that air, we, we, we force it out through our vocal cords, and we use our mouths, our nose, our tongues, our lips to form what? Words, communication. And what do we call that? Breathed out communication is language. We breathe out words that are strung together in order to communicate meaning. That's what I've been doing here for the last 20 minutes, okay? Scripture is God's communication to man 
by words that proceeded out of his mouth. That's all, that's all inspiration means. That's what God breathed. You know, this is the God breathed words. Well, uh, these are Greg breathed words that you're listening to. All breathed words are, are words that we form with our mouth and air as we breathe out. And so that's why Jesus Christ in Matthew 4, 4 answered the devil and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God is a word that is breathed out. Theopneustos. Breathed words are the words that came out of God's mouth. He spoke and then wrote those words down for man. And the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 4, 4 said that every one of those words is important for our lives so that we can live and know how to live. So because God breathed out words that were strung together in order to communicate meaning, and because these words strung together that communicate meaning form what we call language, Just let me take a brief moment to talk about language in Scripture. The the main point here to, to understand is that man did not invent language. Those who say man invented language, people who have this evolutionist uh, mindset, they are those who simply want to continuously undermine the authority of God's Word. Why? Because if language was man's invention, then it becomes one small step to the conclusion that man's language is inadequate to express the mind of God. So if language is man's invention, Scripture is inadequate as God's special revelation because we need more. Scripture can't do it. It's, it's trying to put God's divine thoughts into man's language. We need something else. We need something additional to, to really understand what God is trying to communicate from his mind to ours. And people do this all the time. Look, people do this today. Even people who say they believe the Bible, believe the words of God, what do they tell us? They tell us, well, the, the, you can't trust a translation. Why? Because it's the original documents that were inspired, which is a lie. Even if they were inspired, the Bible never calls the original documents inspired. We're going to get to that in our next lesson. But the the point being that they say, look, in order to really, 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 really understand the Word of God, you need to go back to the original languages because that's what they were written in, Hebrew and Greek and some Aramaic. Well, if, if God is the one who invented languages, languages, okay, remember the Tower of Babel? Where did languages come from? As God. Well, then God can clearly use the languages he designed and created in order to express his thoughts. So that's what these people fail to take into account. It's what Scripture says about itself, about God's breathed out words that he uses to communicate with us. The Bible says language existed far way before man was ever created. Language, and not a specific um, you know, English or, or Spanish or Greek or Hebrew. No, language, just language, spoken or written words used to communicate meaning. Language existed before Genesis 1.1. If you look at Proverbs 8, before God created anything, wisdom existed from eternity past, and wisdom is the word and words of God. Proverbs 8, and 23 says, The Lord possessed me, wisdom, in the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. So way before God even started creation, language existed. Wisdom existed. This communication of wisdom through language, through words, it existed in the mind of God. Before God ever created man, he used language to create in Genesis 1-3. What does the Bible say about light? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Before man ever 
was created, God was using language, what he said, words breathed out of his mouth, words that proceeded out of the mouth of God. He used them to create. Genesis 1.24, and God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And, and before God created man, he used language to communicate to the animals. The Bible says God spoke to the animals and gave them imperatives. He gave them commands. Genesis 1, 21 and 22. The Bible says, And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, the animals, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the sea and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And so God used language, words, words that were grouped together to communicate meaning, even meaning to, to mean imperatives and commands that he gave the animal kingdom before man ever existed. And then when God created man, obviously he gave man language. And God did so in order to communicate authoritatively with man just like with the animals, to give man imperatives, to give man commands. That's what we saw in the Edenic Covenant. He said, God said unto them, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That's a command. God used language to communicate meaning to Adam. Adam didn't invent the language. God did. And in Genesis 2.15, obviously, where he says, you know, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, that's communication. So God used language to communicate authoritatively with man, to give him imperative, to give him commands. And God also, he did so in order to walk with man in fellowship so that they could exchange ideas, so that, so that man could understand some things that were in the mind of God and that they could share those things, communicate about those things, and have fellowship in those things. And so Scripture, God's written communication with man through words that form language, has its origin in the mind of God. God created language. God created this idea of words combined in such a way as to communicate meaning, and then God used that language to breathe out meaningful communication to man, just like I am breathing out what I hope is meaningful communication to you. Breathing out just means speaking the words. God said. So the origin of Scripture is clearly declared in the Scripture itself. God inspired the words written in the book we call Scripture, the Bible. All Scripture, every last word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God is inspired. It originated with God. It came from God's mind. And we call Scripture God's Word because it's a collection of the words that God breathed out, that He spoke, that He inspired in order to communicate meaningfully with man. Here's something that Lewis Berry Schaefer says about the Bible and his systematic theology. He says, The Bible is the book of God. By this title, it is intended to call attention to the claim everywhere present in the Bible that it is God's message to man and not man's message to his fellow men, much less man's message to God. And so, the revelation that God gave to us, man, is authoritative. When God speaks, let me ask you this. Just how does he speak? Is God given to idle chatter? Does God exaggerate? Does God natter on and on and on about insignificant topics? Does God lie? Does God tell us, partial truths to hide things from us and deceive us and manipulate us. Look, when the Creator breathes out words that communicate meaning, just how does that communication come to us? Well, I think it's obvious. God naturally speaks with absolute authority. How else would the all-powerful 
all-knowing, creator of all things, how else would he speak? Look, because of who God is, God is creator, God is king, God is Lord, God is sovereign, because of who God is, he always speaks from a position of ultimate and final authority. Listen to what 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12 says. 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12. Thine, O Lord, is the greatest, and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as the head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee. And thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. So when God, the sovereign, when God communicates information to inform us of something, it is from a position of authority. It means that when God communicates information, God is right and everyone else is wrong regardless of whether we understand it fully or not. And when God communicates imperatives to instruct us or to command us, it is from a position of absolute, complete, and final authority over us as as people and over our lives as subjects in his kingdom. I'm going to quote Schaefer again, referring to the divine authority of Scripture. He says this in his Systematic Theology. He says, The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments form a canon because of the fact that they are authoritative oracles. By the term authoritative, it is implied that the Bible, in all its parts, is the voice of God speaking to man. Its authority is inherent, being as it is, no less than the imperial edict of thus saith God the Lord. And so God has revealed himself to man. He's done so in the general, what we call natural revelation of creation. He's done so with great specificity in the special revelation of inspired scripture. The collection of of words, scripture, collection of words breathed out of the mouth of God that God spoke in a language that man can understand. He did so, God did so, in order to communicate with us. And this revelation from God to man comes to man from God's position of absolute and final authority. God revealed himself authoritatively, not in submission to man, not as man's equal. No, God revealed himself as he is. Man's creator, man's God, man's Lord, his king, his sovereign. And this speaks to us of purpose. So why did God give us his authoritative written word? To what end? For what purpose? If every word of Scripture proceeds out of the mouth of God, and it does, all Scripture is inspired. All, all Scripture, every word, is God-breathed. It came from God's mouth, from his mind, through his mouth, and into the book that you can hold in your hand. So if every word of Scripture proceeds out of the mouth of God, and it does, and if God always speaks from a position of absolute authority, and he does, then why did he give us the inspired Scripture? What for? To what end? For what purpose? And that's our second point in this lesson, the purpose of Scripture. Scripture's purpose is very clearly stated. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We saw that first phrase, that's what we were just, just, what we finished looking at. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, and then comes the, well, what for? It says that this Scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable. Here's your what for. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You see, the Bible was given to man to govern him. Oh, don't don't miss that. You need to write that down. The Bible was given to man to govern him. The Bible was given Scripture, inspired Scripture, the words that proceeded out of the mouth of God 
was given to guide our conduct and thereby change our character so that we might be conformed to God's design and desire, that we might do and be what God wants us to do and be. And so according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, God inspired Scripture in order to exercise His authority over man. Now we know that God, He has spoken in different ways to different people during different times. That's that's obvious. Hebrews 1, 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time passed unto the fathers by the prophets, and He goes on and explains the different ways that God speaks to man. Okay, I get it. Scripture is the final authoritative form of God's communication to man. John 5.39 says that Scripture now speaks for God because Scripture speaks of God. Jesus Christ in John 5.39 says, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They, the Scriptures, are they which testify of me, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, God in the flesh. And so in Scripture, 2 Peter 1, 16-21, we ha- we, you knew we were going to get to this passage, right? In Scripture, we have a more sure communication from God. It is more sure than even His own audible voice, because the words are written in plain, normal language, language that can be readily understood by anyone who would simply read these words with humility. Listen to 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 21. Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now he's referring back to Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, the very audible voice of God, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. And then in verse 19, Peter says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, a more sure word that comes from God with the teaching from God. And he says, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. So in verse 19, he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, and he says that that prophecy is the prophecy of Scripture. In verse 20, for the prophecy of Scripture came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake. God breathed his words as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Scripture was given to provide four things in God's authoritative governing process over man. It says that Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Doctrine is simply the fact that, that Scripture states what is right and good and just. That's doctrine. That's your teaching. Reproof means that Scripture points out what man does that is not right, not good, and not just. And then comes the correction because Scripture indicates what man needs to do in order to stop doing what's wrong and start doing what's right. And then God gives us lovingly instruction in righteousness because Scripture teaches us how to keep doing what's right and not fall back into doing what's wrong. Doctrine is what's right. Reproof is what's wrong. Correction, how to get it right. Instruction in righteousness, how to keep it right. And Scripture provides all this in order that the man of God may be made perfect and thereby made ready, truly furnished for the works God has for him to do in the kingdom. So Scripture has a very clear declared purpose. And Scripture's purpose, in the purpose of Scripture, we see that God's will 
is declared. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. I've got a, a bunch of verses in the notes. Might read them, might not. Um, this point was developed fairly well in the series that I did on discipleship at the beginning of this podcast. The first, I don't know, dozen or, or, or so episodes um, dealt with a, a lot of this, this purpose and mission and discipleship. But I, I want to give a brief review here because it can help us see the importance of Scripture in our context today. God's purpose for us is clearly stated in Scripture. What is our life's purpose? Man exists to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay, Romans eleven thirty six. For him, for him, sorry, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. It's Romans eleven thirty six. That's our purpose. We exist to glorify God, and because God is love, He wants us to enjoy Him forever. Uh, he made us so that we could enjoy Him, so that we could glorify Him, and in that, enjoy Him. So we fulfill our purpose. How? Okay, John 17, 4 shows us the how. Jesus Christ says, I have glorified thee on earth. Okay, Jesus Christ fulfilled the purpose. How did He do that? He says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And so we fulfill our purpose when we complete the mission that God gave us to do. And our mission speaks of, of the work God has given us to accomplish, okay? The work that he has given us to accomplish, a work that glorifies him and allows us to enjoy him now and forever, okay? What is that work? Okay, that work in general terms is the work of uh, being and making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because God wants all men to be saved, right? Think about this with me. Think of what, what is God's will? If I'm saying, look, Scripture and Scripture, we, the purpose of Scripture is to declare God's will, Scripture makes God's will plain. It communicates God's will. God's mind, what he wants, is communicated clearly in Scripture. Well, what does God want? God wants all men to be saved. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. God is not willing that any should perish. God does not want any man to go to hell. So that's why Jesus Christ died for everybody. And God's will is that all of us who are saved that we grow into Christ-likeness. That's what he said in Romans 8, 29, that he wants to conform us to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 19, Christ, uh, God wants to form Christ in us, that, which is the, the point of Luke 6, 40, tying in discipleship, that the disciple shall be as his master. So that's what God wants. God, God wants all men to be saved. And for those of us who are saved... We're not going to perish in our sins, but God still wants something for us. What is God's will? Well, God's will is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, his Son, that we be Christians, all right? So once we're saved and once we're growing in Christ and Christ's likeness, what's God's will for us? Well, God's will is that we evangelize the lost so that they might be saved also, isn't that what Paul said? Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he told us, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And he explained that, that we've been given this ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. That God in Christ was reconciling the world unto himself. And he gave us, he committed to us, he dispensed to us the word of reconciliation that he wants us to preach to every creature. And so that's God's will. He wants us to be saved. He wants us to be sanctified, which means we need to be Christians. We need to be growing in Christ-likeness. And once we're doing that, well, God wants us to go out and preach the gospel so more people can be saved. And then once they get saved, God's will is that we do something to edify our brothers and sisters in Christ so that they can grow in sanctification. They can grow in Christ-likeness. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he gave some apostles, Christ gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Now the saints are perfected to do the work of the ministry, and we do the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, the edifying of the body of Christ. So each and every one of us is a member of the body of Christ. We have certain gifts and talents and, and abilities, and God wants us to, to use those in love so that the body of Christ may edify itself in love, and we might all participate in the work of helping one another grow in Christ's likeness. And so God's declared will for man, salvation and sanctification, his, his desire to restore his lost image in sinful man, is accomplished primarily through Scripture. Now, now listen, listen, listen to what, what, what these verses say. Salvation. 
Scripture is essential in salvation. You remember, remember the difference between general revelation and specific revelation? If we did not have the specific revelation of Scripture, if all we had was general revelation, we would be without excuse. Why? Because we would know there's a God, and we would know we're guilty because we have a conscience. But what else are we going to do? How can we be saved unless we have a special, specific revelation from God about how to be made right with God because we're guilty? Well, that specific and special revelation is Scripture. God gave us Scripture so that we might be saved. It says in Romans uh, 10, 13 to 17, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, that's what we want. That's great. And then he goes on and he says in verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? So somebody's got to go and preach to them specific revelation. How shall they preach except they be sent? It is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. And then in verse 17, he says, So then faith, this saving faith, cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Scripture is essential in salvation. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Scripture is essential in salvation. We cannot be saved without the special revelation God gave us in Scripture about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, about, about repentance, about faith, about trust, about good works and how they fit and how they don't fit. It's all in Scripture. And then after we're saved, Scripture is essential in sanctification. You cannot be conformed to the image of Christ without Scripture. That's why I say you need to learn the Bible and do what it tells you. That's the whole point. Look, being conformed to the image of Christ, it means being perfected. It, be, it means being made like the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Listen to Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. Again, it says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God wants to perfect us until we reach that, that perfect man, until we are made like that perfect man, the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. And that process of perfecting a sinner and making him more and more like Christ and less and less like Adam it only occurs through learning and applying the Scripture. Why? Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Scripture is profitable for doctrine to teach you what's right, for reproof to show you what's wrong in your life, for correction so that you might know how to get it right, and for instruction in righteousness so that you can keep it right and walk in fellowship with God so that you may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And that brings us to the next point that needs to be made with regard to Scripture's purpose as God's authoritative declaration to man. Okay, we know that Scripture's purpose is clear, okay? It is that to govern man. It is to, to change man in conduct and character, okay? It, it's, it, is, it is an expression, a declaration of what God's will is, but when we talk about Scripture's purpose, we need to understand that it not only declares God's will, Scripture addresses man's will. Now, I'm going to say that again. Scripture declares God's will, but it addresses, it aims at, it speaks to man's will. God inspired Scripture, all of it, with this clear an expressed purpose of exercising his authority, God's authority, over man. In Scripture, God declares in clear and normal language exactly what he expects of man. That's what we call doctrine. 
through Scripture, God reproves us, pointing out what we are doing wrong, what has broken this relationship and fellowship with our Creator. Okay, um, and when you talk about this, you know, you say, you know, Scripture reproves sinful man, pointing out what he does wrong. I got a question: Is the modern church listening? I don't think so. We need reproof in the modern church so that we can get back to doing what's right. And Scripture provides the correction so that we can get back to doing what's right. We stop doing what's wrong. Okay, stop turning out the lights in, in church. Stop your stupid fog machines. Get the rock band off the, the, the stage. Get the stage out of the, the sanctuary. Get yourself a pulpit, some pews, some hymnals, and get back to Bible that would edify the saints rather than entertaining the goats. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Let's go. See, after God gives us doctrine and reproof and correction, well, he lovingly instructs us in righteousness so that we can walk together with him in simple fellowship. Simple fellowship. So scripture is God's authoritative self-declaration. And as such, scripture is directed primarily at man's will. You know, I understand we need to learn Scripture. That's where doctrine comes from. But even though we have to learn Scripture, Scripture does not primarily appeal to man's intellect. Scripture is designed by God to confront man with God's absolute authority over him. And so it addresses his will. And because Scripture is inspired by God, because it comes from the mind of God, the Bible does not appeal to human reason as the ultimate in order to justify what it says. It comes to the human being with simply absolute authority. It's the thus saith the Lord. So a proper knowledge and understanding of Scripture, it requires something of us. If we are going to study the Bible like God designed the Bible to be studied, it requires willing submission to its final authority. It requires a humble and fearful disposition of obedience. Jesus said, John 7, verses 16 and 17, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will... He shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. There's a quote from a guy named Trena. He's got a great book uh, called uh, Methodical Bible Study. And he says in the introduction, just kind of presenting some uh, requirements for Bible study, he says, dullness in Bible study is due to an improper attitude towards scriptures and can be overcome only by the development of of a true respect for them. If we do not study the Bible with a conscious intention of doing what we are learning, we are not studying the Bible as it was written. Because God wrote the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. God gave the Bible. He gave it authoritatively for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness to change our conduct. God wrote the Bible to address man's will and thereby exercise his divine authority over man's conduct in his kingdom. All elements of God's revelation require human response, and man is held accountable individually for his response to that. So it's an assumption when we approach the Bible to study it. It is a requirement. It's simply the nature of the Bible. The Bible is God's authoritative word to man. So if man does not recognize the authoritative nature of the Bible he is he's studying, if he does not accept that authority, submit to it, have an attitude of fearful reverence before it, he is not qualified for theological study. So proper study and understanding of Scripture is essential for our lives. Now, doctrine 
when we talk about the, the Bible and what the Bible teaches us, I mean, we're, we're kind of we're, we're getting towards the, the conclusion here and kind of wrapping up this idea. The doctrine of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, was given authoritatively. God didn't just give doctrine to entertain our minds, to tickle our ears, to give us something neat and fun to, to think about. Doctrine was given authoritatively to change our conduct. Why our conduct? Because you cannot change your character for as much as you want to. You cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But if you want God's Spirit to produce His fruit in you, learn the Bible, do what it says. Learn the Bible and let it dictate your conduct. Do what the Bible says, and that will result in changes in your character by the hand of the Holy Spirit. Scripture was given by God to man in order to teach man about God and about God's expectations. That teaching is what we call doctrine, but that teaching, that doctrine, it comes from God's position of final authority. God gave the Scripture to govern man, to rule over man, to change man's conduct, so God could change man's character and restore in him the image lost by Adam, that image that is now found only in Christ. So if our doctrine is wrong, if we misunderstand Scripture's teaching, our conduct is going to be wrong also. Just like now, now here's your here's your couple of I'm gonna throw a couple of words at you. Orthodoxy, orthopraxis, heterodoxy, heteropraxis. Orthodoxy, which is good doctrine. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxis. Praxis meaning practice. Okay? Assuming we submit to and obey the good doctrine. Well, just like orthodoxy, good doctrine, will lead to orthopraxis, good practice, when we submit and obey, so heterodoxy, bad doctrine, different doctrine, will lead to heteropraxis, bad practice. And welcome to the modern church. Look, the vast majority of aberrant practice in churches today is the result of either bad doctrine or sloppy doctrine or simply no attention to doctrine at all. Pastors are no longer theologians. The modern church does not want a pastor-teacher. The modern church wants a CEO. The modern church wants a program administrator. The modern church wants a psychological counselor. We've shown our theologians the door and told them they have no place in the local church. So they went, they built their little ivory towers, and they call them seminaries. Scripture and the doctrine it teaches is essential to know who God is and what God expects of us. And that's why I want an introductory study of the Bible and its structure as a unified whole. And that's why I'm starting this study with a brief review of what the Bible is. What is this book that God has given us? The Bible is a covenant corpus. And because the Bible is a covenant corpus, it is also authoritative. The Bible is an authoritative document of self-revelation. It originated with God, and it is directed at man, specifically at man's will, so that man will change his conduct in order to submit to and obey the King, our Creator. And let me, let, let me just take one, one brief moment to get one more side note in here before we grab our conclusion. Folks, this is why hermeneutics is critical. Hermeneutics is critical. Okay, look, doctrine. We get our doctrine, the teaching, from the exegesis of Scripture, from the study of Scripture. Doctrine will directly influence our conduct, the application of Scripture, because we learn Scripture from the study of Scripture, we pull the principles out, and we do what we're learning. Well, hermeneutics the, the principles and the rules of proper exegesis, the principles and the rules of Bible study, hermeneutics will directly influence our doctrine. 
how we understand the content of the Bible. Any change in our hermeneutics will change our doctrine, and any change in our doctrine will change our practice. And so we need a hermeneutic that is consistent with the character and nature of God. We need a hermeneutic that is consistent with the character and nature of language. We need a hermeneutic that is consistent with the character and nature of Scripture, the inspired words of God that have been combined to communicate to man through language that God himself designed and created. And Lord willing, we'll do just that. Define a God-honoring, scripturally-based hermeneutic that will guide us in our introductory study of the Bible and its structure as a unified whole. So, we're at our conclusion. You can start zipping up your Bible. That, that's a kind of a Baptist thing. I'd really rather you not. But what is the Bible? That's what we're looking at. That's, what, that's the question that we're answering. Well, the Bible is a covenant corpus. The Bible is a collection of covenants. It's a book made up of covenants. It's a document made up of two testaments, two covenants that started with the death of the testator. And its content, all of Scripture, crystallizes around the eight major covenants God made with man. Thank you, Schofield. Well, this led us to what we just studied out. The Bible, because it is covenant, because it is a covenant corpus, it is authoritative. Covenants are God's legal mechanism to to delegate responsibility and authority, to, to charge man with some stewardship to make his will clear. And so the Bible is authoritative in its origin. The words of Scripture, the words of this book we, we're, we propose to study, they are inspired by God. God breathed out words to communicate to man in language that God designed and language that man understands. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, breathed out by God. He spoke them. Every word of God that was breathed out of his mouth is inspired and necessary and authoritative. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, every word that is breathed out of the mouth of God, every word that is inspired, and you will find the inspired words of God only in Scripture. How else would God, the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of all things, how else would he speak to us if it's not with absolute authority. And the authority of Scripture also speaks of its purpose. God inspired Scripture to govern us. He gave it its profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Scripture teaches us about God, and it shows us what God expects of us. That's doctrine. That doctrinal teaching is aimed directly at the will of man to reprove him, correct him, and instruct him in righteousness so that he will live like God wants him to live. Scripture, as a covenant corpus, confronts us with God's absolute and final authority over us and our lives as the subjects living in the kingdom God created. The Bible, because it is a covenant document, is authoritative over those with whom God has made those covenants. And here we see the why. I, I'm trying to come full circle to this thing. Why should we invest the time? Why should we invest the effort into an intentional, methodical, systematic Bible study? Why? Well, first and foremost, because we know God through Scripture. And that's our life, John 17, 3. This is eternal life. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We know God through Scripture. And through Scripture, we know exactly what God expects of us. You see, God expects us to be faithful, be faithful in discharging the stewardship he gave us and entrusted to us. 1 Corinthians 4, 2. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Scripture teaches us what that stewardship is. 
doctrine. And then Scripture teaches us how we can do what God wants us to do in order to to be good, faithful stewards, doing what He wants done the way He wants it done. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness so that we can be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Look, God is not trying to hide anything from us that we need. God wants us to fulfill His will and His desire for us. He told us exactly what He wants, exactly what He expects of us. He wrote it down for us in language we could easily understand. What He requires of us now is that we invest the time and effort in learning the Bible in its proper context, according to proper hermeneutics, so that we can then choose to submit to Him, change our conduct, and do what He told us to do. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you want to be approved unto God, if you want to be pleasing unto God, if you want to do what God expects you to do, you have to learn the Bible and then do what it tells you. Now, I have one more lesson on this topic under the the, the question, what is the Bible? In our first lesson, we covered that the Bible is a covenant corpus. We got that. This was our second lesson, and it focused on this authoritative nature of the Bible as a covenant corpus. In the next, the third and final lesson, all I want to do is highlight the fact that the Bible is accessible. Look, the Bible is accessible. This authoritative covenant corpus, it is available to all and it is easily understood by any who would simply desire to know God, to submit to Him and obey Him, so that we might please Him in all that we do. Thanks for spending your time listening to my podcast, Theology 101. You can find the rest of my studies in English out on my website, theology101.net. And if you'd like to contact me, there's a contact page on that website also. Remember... God expects us to be faithful, so learn the Bible and do what it tells you, and then come back for more Theology 101.